starting a series that begins this evening and goes for the next five weeks. And so every time I speak to corporations, conferences all over the country, one of the things I say within the first paragraph is, it's not easy being a transgender woman. But I rarely talk about the specifics of what the hardest thing is about being a transgender person. Because the hardest thing about it is the discontinuity between my life as Paul and my life as Paula. So I knew 5,000 people in my denomination in my previous life by name. And to date, I've had conversations with exactly 10 of those people post-transition. And the one thing all 10 have in common is they've all said, oh, this is just weird. We knew you all those decades as a guy, and this is just weird. And I know that there are others in my denomination who don't come to see me just for that reason, because you guys are the same. I have shown videos of life as Paul to some of you, and your response has been, oh, it's a disconnect to you. So like this past week, I'm looking at a TV show we made 20 years ago, like last week, that was in fact an hour-long musical. We shot it here in town four times, 3,000 people. It won Telly Awards, which is the um, cable version of the Emmys. I was executive producer, I was the head writer, but I don't ever show it to any of you because I was also the host. <laughs> and I know exactly what you'll do if you see it. You'll be like, oh, because we are a gendered species and it's hard for us to go through that shift in understanding when somebody transitions genders. It's just a strong disconnect. Either direction it goes has nothing to do with your theology. But here's the truth. All of us, everybody in the Western world, including Christians, non-Christians, everybody, if you're in the West, what separates the West from the East? Christianity. And you have an opinion about Jesus. And chances are your opinion, if not set in stone, is set in hard-baked clay. And nobody can change your particular opinion of Jesus. You might think he was just a guy who started a ridiculous religion that's ruined the world, and you are going to stay there no matter what. And then you might think of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're not going to adjust that no matter what. And both of you, if you have those two extremes, will be very uncomfortable over the next five weeks because I'm going to challenge some of the things you think you know about Jesus. We're going to be working from the 1990s book, the iconic book, Marcus Borg's 
meeting Jesus again for the first time. And most everything we know about Jesus, we know from the Bible. History does talk a little bit about Jesus, and what it says pretty much agrees with what's in the Bible. But most everything we learn about Jesus, we learn from the Bible. So we've got to start with our ground rules and how we understand the Bible. The Bible was written over 1,500 years by dozens of people in three different languages. And it's 66 books, not one. So understanding the Bible is not nearly as simple as we'd like to make it. And there are two major lenses through which we need to look at Scripture. The first is proper exegesis. What is exegesis? It means figuring out the meaning of something to those to whom it was written. Doing our best to get the, the meaning of something at the time it was written into our own understanding. That's proper exegesis. So if you want to exegete the U.S. Constitution... You want to figure out exactly what it meant for those to whom it was written. So in properly exegeting scripture, you're looking at exactly what did it mean to the people to whom it was written, whether it was the Hebrew people, whether it was the Greek people, whether it was the Roman people. What was its meaning at the time? And to figure out its meaning at the time, there are five rules you have to follow. I'm not always a left-brain preacher. I'm going to be a left-brain preacher tonight. We're going to be focused on those five rules and a couple of other things that are maybe even more important. The first of the five rules, you have to study the Bible historically. What was its historical context? If you want to understand Israel, you want to understand their notion of a promised land and the land of Canaan and where it was, you have to understand historically what was happening in the rest of the known world at that time. First rule, you study the Bible historically. Second rule, you study the Bible comparatively. So let's say you want to find out what the Bible says about God. So you look at John's epistles and shot through those epistles. Of those epistles is the notion, God is love. And so you know God is love. But that's not all God is. And so we study every other passage of scripture that talks about the nature of God. And we find out more than any other those passages will tell us God is love, but they also will tell us God is grace, God is mercy, God is gracious, God is forgiveness, God is a lot of other things as well. That's studying scripture comparatively. What's everything scripture says on the subject you happen to be discussing? The third rule is you have to study the Bible contextually, in context. So I could say to you tonight, and it would be a command of scripture, curse God and die. Because it's in the Bible as a command. Curse God and die. But what might we say is the context of that? It's in the book of Job. Did you know even conservative theologians think the book of Job was not historical, but just a story? Also, it was spoken by Job's wife who'd had it. Because all these horrible things had happened to Job, and still Job is worshiping the God of Israel, and she's had it, and she looks at her husband, and with a complete exasperation, she says, curse God and die. <laughs> Context is everything. We also have to study the Bible syntactically. What were the gram grammatical rules of the particular language, particularly the gra grammatical rules of Hebrew? the grammatical rules of Greek. And I have to tell you, the Greek grammatical rules were so utterly different than ours, so complicated, so complex. 
it is not easy translating the Greek into the English, and what makes it work worse is to the Greeks. There were no punctuations, no commas, no periods, no question marks, no exclamation points, which might not have been a bad thing. We just overdo exclamation points. So all of the translators have to figure these out. And they put them in different places. And you know where you put a comma means all the difference in the world. I mean, what is your perspective on commas? Uh, because, yeah, you know exactly what that's all about. That's studying the Bible syntactically. Then there's also studying the Bible lexically, which possibly is the most important. And that means according to the meanings of the specific words. And even that's not simple. Because there's a Greek word, teleos, which meant perfect. And it's translated into the English word, perfect. And so it's a problem because we don't understand what perfection was to the mind of the Hebrew person at the time Jesus was speaking. And we tend to think it meant the same thing it means today. The word perfect meant the same thing it means today. It, it did not. But that's what I grew up being taught because Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So now Jesus has told me perfection is attainable. And then you add to that the fact that my mother mm, tried hard, but my mother had narcissistic personality disorder. And one of the specifics of people with narcissistic personality disorder is they think they have done no wrong. They think they are, in fact, absolutely perfect. If anything ever has been done wrong, it's your fault because they're perfect and you're not. And so my mother's perspective was, I'm perfect. I've achieved perfection in the eyes of God. What's wrong with you that you haven't as well? This will keep you in therapy for decades. <laughs> and then I start studying it actually for a sermon here. What does teleos really mean? And I find out teleos does not mean perfect the way we think perfect. The Greek word teleos... Perfect meant perfect in that you are complete in all of your parts, living for your intended purpose. Wait, what? Uh-huh. When Jesus says be perfect, he's saying be complete in all of your parts, living for your intended purpose, as your Father is complete in all of his parts, living for his intended purpose. That's a little bit different. So that means me... A gay transgender woman, in fact, complete in all of my parts and living for my intended purpose. Okay, I can go with that. That's the importance of studying the Bible lexically, according to the meaning of the words used. So that's studying exegetically, figuring out what it meant to the people to whom it was written. The second question, though, is that we need to study the Bible hermeneutically. And that begins with how do we understand the Bible? What do we see the Bible as? And if you're discussing the Bible with somebody else and you're starting from different places on this subject, you've got a problem. What are the presuppositions you're bringing with you into that conversation? A lot of people think the Bible was just a storybook. It's nothing but a narrative of myths. A lot of other people think the Bible is a book of history. And it's actually pretty accurate as a book of history. There are others over the last 15 or 500 years or so who think of the Bible as a collection of facts. It doesn't turn out so well when you try to look at it as a collection of facts. There are others who say the Bible is the inspired word of God. And I actually happen to believe that. There are two passages 
that talk very specifically about the inspiration of Scripture in one of those, not quite so specifically in the other. Paul, writing to Timothy, in Timothy 3.16, talks to us about the inspiration of Scripture. And this, every evangelical fundamentalist in the world will use this passage. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that is what he says. But what did Jesus say? Because I'm always most interested in what Jesus had to say on any particular subject, and Jesus doesn't speak about it directly ever. Now that means something. He speaks about it here tangentially. John 10, 34 and 35. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, well, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world, speaking of himself? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? So where he speaks it tangentially is he says, and the scripture cannot be broken. So the scripture cannot be broken. What does that mean? We don't know. No one knows exactly what that means. It means at the time to the people who, to whom Jesus was speaking, when he said scripture cannot be broken, it meant something. What it meant was that the history of Israel as they understood it was reliable. That's what it meant. That it was a reliable history of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. So all three of your co-pastors believe Scripture is inspired, but interestingly, all three of us would define that inspiration in different ways. And then you find an entire part of the Christian world that takes it a step further and believes the Bible is without error in its original copies. And by the way, we don't have any of the original copies or even copies of the original copies. The closest we have are a few fragments of copies of copies of original copies. You get that? And yet, theoretically, they believe the Bible had absolutely no errors whatsoever in its origins. This never started till about 500 years ago. That's just too far away tonight. I should be able to just put it. Until about 500 years ago, and that was the beginning of the modern age. And during the modern age, there was a fixation with facts. And so... It was important to the Christian world to say we're factual as well, so factual that there are no errors anywhere in this scripture. And major denominations have split over this. The Southern Baptists have really split over this. I lost a job I wanted once over this. I was offered the position as the dean of a rather prestigious seminary. So I went, I interviewed for the position, and the head of the New Testament department asked me a question. In our department, we teach the inerrancy of Scripture. Will you support that? And I said, I will support what the Bible says about itself when it comes to Scripture. And he said, do you believe it's inerrant? And I said, I believe it cannot be broken. And he said, inerrant. And I said, no. I believe what Jesus said, that it cannot be broken. Because I would not say it was inerrant, I was not offered that position which meant I never moved to Cincinnati, which well, there's a whole string of things that happened because of that. <laughs> Kids never would have been here. I wouldn't have been living here. Wouldn't be standing here tonight. Um, yeah, but all of that over just that one word. 
So what is the Bible? And then once you've taken a look at what the Bible is, and I've told you our perspective here of, of all of our elders and our pastors is that it is the inspired word of God, though all nine of us would tell you a different story as to exactly how we understand that inspiration. So then how else are we to look at scripture? And one of the biggest hermeneutical questions is, should we always interpret its meaning to us according to its meaning at the time it was originally written? And this is not just a Bible issue. This is a U.S. Constitution issue. We have six Supreme Court members right now who are originalists who say we should always interpret the Constitution according to its meaning at the time it was written. So if, in fact, the Second Amendment says you have the right to bear arms, you have the right to bear arms, period. Any kind of arms, you have the right to bear. But three members of the Supreme Court are non-originalists. They say the Constitution is a living, breathing document that needs to be reinterpreted according to the understanding of the time. And sure enough, those who wrote the Constitution did not have, in the remotest extent of their brains, the notion of an AR-15. An assault weapon is not something they could even conceive of. And so when it says you have the right to bear arms, does it mean you have the right to bear a single loading musket, which is what they knew at the time, or a single shot pistol? Or does it mean you have the right to bear AR-15s? Ah, now you see the complication. And right now, we have a Supreme Court of originalists, but you get the same thing when it comes to the Bible. So virtually every religion at the time the Old Testament and New Testament was written believed in the notion of blood atonement. And when you look at the world back in that age, the world was in fact a place where most children did not survive infancy, let alone childhood did not even grow up to be adults. There was a lot of awful things happening all the time, worse than today. And so the people were trying to find an explanation for that, and they decided it must be because the gods are really, really angry. And if the gods are really, really angry, like anybody who's really, really angry, they need to be appeased. And so they decided the way to appease gods was the shedding of blood. Virtually every religion taught this. Very, very early in the history of our species, the shedding of blood had to be another human. But by the time of Israel, it was no longer a human, it was an animal. And so we make mistakes, we're sinful, we do things wrong, God has to punish us for that, but we'll make an offering to God of an animal. And the shedding of that animal's blood will cause God to not punish us but instead to accept our offering of that animal and to set off, put aside our punishment. This is quite clearly taught in the Hebrew scriptures. But you will not see it taught in most any synagogue today because most forms of Judaism are not originalists. They say, oh yeah, that was back in the time in which there was a sense of blood sacrifice. That is not where any religions of the world are today, save... Christianity, which in its fundamentalist forms, continues to believe in blood sacrifice. And so if you're coming out of space into the world and someone explains to you how Christians understand blood sacrifice, well, you see, 
We're children of God, but we make mistakes, even tiny little mistakes. Even when we're very young, we make tiny little mistakes. And oh, well, now it's all blown wide open. God has no choice but to destroy us and send us to hell. And so there's got to be bloodshed for that, and it's you, because you're not absolutely perfect. Oh, but God has an idea of how to deal with that. God will come to earth as a man, will live perfectly, so doesn't do anything that causes him to have to be sent to hell. And therefore, when God's ready to send us to hell, that Jesus can stand up and say, oh, but I accepted that punishment to myself because I let the people kill me. Would this sound reasonable to you if you had just arrived from another planet? You would say, well, that, that sounds like some real machinations that have been done in an age where there was blood sacrifice. And yet that is the main teaching that separates us from most evangelical and fundamentalist churches. It's not even LGBTQ plus stuff. It's that notion of the substitutionary atonement. That because we weren't perfect, God has no choice but to send us to hell unless Jesus accepted the punishment for us. We do not believe that because my three children, though they're close to it, are not perfect. My five granddaughters, though again close, are not perfect. Well, they're all teenagers now, so they're really not perfect right now. <laughs> would I send them to hell because they're not perfect? Well, that's just a ridiculous notion. Of course I would not. So if we understand the Bible, we understand at the time it was written, of course they believed in blood sacrifice. Today, we no longer would find that tenable. That is a difference between seeing the Bible as set in stone, only to be interpreted and understood and followed according to its meaning at the time it was written, or how the Bible can be understood today as having shifted with our understanding as a history of people to what, in fact, God is, which is love. And of course, actually, you can make an argument from the beginning that the substitutionary atonement was not even exegetically there, but we're not going there tonight because it's not going to be an hour-long sermon. So now we talk about Jesus. Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark, written 66 AD. Matthew and Luke borrowed all of Mark's material. Mark was written primarily for the Roman population. Luke was written for the non-Jewish population. Matthew was written for the Jewish population. John was written for all the left-brain philosophical people in the world and for Shannon Fletcher. John was written for the mystics. John was written for those who are very focused on that which is mysterious. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic gospels because they come from the same sources. Basically, they come from the source of Mark. Matthew and Luke, therefore, all of their timeline agrees with Mark because the three were getting their information from the same place. John was writing far more philosophically and outside the realm of time and space. Now, this is one place we see where subtle changes can turn into huge changes in biblical scholarship because at the time Marcus Borg's book was written, the assumption was the Gospel of John was written somewhere toward the end of the second century, that it was not written by any eyewitnesses, and therefore, we had to understand it as the second century church's understanding of Jesus. Well, now, just 25 years later, the most recent scholarship and archaeological work tells us, guess what? It was, in fact, written around 11080. It was the last of the four, and it was written by eyewitnesses, more than likely written by John, 
And we've discovered when it comes to the historical facts and the timeline, it is quite likely more accurate than the other three. So that's a major shift that's taken place in just a 25-year period. And so we hold lightly onto what we understand about the findings of scholarship. So John has always worked for me from the time I was in seminary because John is really easy to translate. Think like, you know, a third grader. That's how simple the language is to translate as opposed to Paul, which is... Yeah. So I loved translating the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or Revelation, all written by John because they were easy to follow, but also because of their cosmic timelessness. It's the Jesus who speaks most clearly to me. Now, you're going to have the Jesus who speaks most clearly to you. To my former wife, it's the Gospel of Luke that speaks most clearly to her. To a lot of my friends, it's the Gospel of Mark. But for me, it's John. And it's all wrapped up in the beginning of the book. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos, the Word, was with God. And the Logos was God. The Logos was with God in the beginning. My mentor in the faith was a professor of philosophy, head of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Chicago. And he said, just contemplate the notion in the beginning. With what we know about the Big Bang, with what we're discovering today, and my mentor has been gone for a long time, but what the Webb telescope is already teaching us about black holes. If you read the article in the New York Times just a week ago on that. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. The Logos was with God in the beginning. Through the Logos, through the Word, all things were made. Without the Word, nothing was made that has been made. And the Word was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness but the darkness has not understood it. That is where John begins his gospel. The Jesus who was there from the beginning and before time. The Jesus who was there in the beginning and before space. The Jesus who was and who is love. God, thank you. Thank you for bringing people in the world who were nerdish enough to write down everything that happened. Or those who just memorized it all because they didn't know how to write and made sure that it was passed down from generation to generation. Because through them, we discovered you and your decision to come to earth to live among us, to show solidarity with us in the midst of our suffering, to show us what it is to be fully, completely, utterly, full of ourselves human. Thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus. 
Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.